If you're new here this morning, you don't know that we're in a series. We're talking about marriage. And so we're going to talk about marriage this morning. And you might be here and you're married and you're like, okay, great. I came on the right week. You might be here and you're not married. And you're like, uh, what's, what's there for me? Um, maybe you're young and you vowed to never get married because girls have cooties. And so, you know, um, that's never going to happen. Um, is there anything for me this morning? Or maybe you're thinking about getting married. I don't want to look at anybody in particular, but maybe there's somebody here thinking about it. Is there going to be something for me this morning? And my answer is yes, because we're talking about marriage, but I want to throw this word out that really has just dominated my, my thinking as I was preparing for this morning, and it's the word redemption. So I just want to throw it out there, because it's going to come up in this story, and for some it's going to redemption and marriage and for others, it might be redemption. That's a very Christian, a very churchy word. You know, what does that really mean? The closest you may have come to redemption is that word on your cans and bottles. You know, the redemption value of five cents. You know, and maybe you don't even think about what that means. So we're going we're gonna to take a journey this morning, and I'm, I'm asking you to join me on this journey, really looking at this idea of redemption. And it's going to play into marriage. It's going to play into what God intends for marriage. We're going to start with this idea of, a, of an origin story or a backstory. I have grandkids, and so I watch certain movies repeatedly. Anybody with me? When, when little kids get fixed on a movie, you know, we're going to start keeping track. We're going to give an award for the most times watching Wreck-It Ralph, because I think I've watched it you know, a hundred times. And in that story, in Wreck-It Ralph, there's a moment, there's a character who is introduced, and the comment is made, she has a tragic backstory, a tragic origin story. You guys remember that? Anybody? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, some of you, okay. That means because you've watched it a bunch of times too. This idea of a, of a backstory, a tragic backstory or an origin story. Let me suggest this. Scripture, I believe, teaches that all of us have a tragic backstory. All of us have a terrible origin story because of sin. David said it this way, he was born, he was conceived in sin. And he wasn't speaking of the act of his parents, he was speaking of the reality that every one of us is born, comes into this world with this backstory of Genesis chapter 3. Where God created the world, the universe, he creates man and woman, he puts them in the garden, and this amazing story is, begins to unfold, and then a twist, a plot twist happens, and Adam and Eve rebel against God. They do the one thing he told them not to do, and our tragic backstory unfolds. You with me? Hollywood loves tragic back, these origin stories, don't they? If you've, in the last few years, watched any of the Marvel, the, you know, the spinoffs. And look at Disney's doing with Star Wars now. Pretty much everything are, you know, origin stories of different characters. Well, our, our focus in God's Word this morning is in the book of Ruth. Now, some of you, is, you're going to panic about right now because, wow, this is four chapters long. And Kurt's reputation is such that we're going to be out, of, we'll be done by Tuesday, you know, and then we'll be free to go eat. Don't panic. We're not going to, we're going to do some survey this morning. We're going to zoom in on a few places. If you want to go through the book of Ruth, you can go to our website, and we, we taught through the book of Ruth in four weeks. That seems a little more reasonable, doesn't it? 
Yeah, okay. So go on, online, go to our website, crossroadsfamily.org, and you can look up those messages and you can listen to those. This morning, we're going to zoom in on a few pieces of Ruth. But Ruth begins with a tragic backstory or a hopeless origin story. Are you familiar with the book of Ruth? Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. During the time of the Judges, we have a book in the Bible called Judges. Isn't that a hope-filled, uplifting book? Ultimately, yes, but it's a hard read. It's a hard read because if you're honest and you read it, you're going to find yourself there. You're going to find our current society there. You're going to find humanity there, and it's, it's pretty dark. And it was during this time when these events are unfolding that there was a famine in the land, and a man left Bethlehem. We'll learn his name later. And he left Bethlehem, which is in Judah, with his wife and his two sons. So he picks up his family. There's a famine. He's going to find food. And so he goes to live in the land of Moab for a while. That's his plan. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons are Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. Now, if you want to unpack that more, go listen to the, the messages that we have. Because that's as far as we're going to go, as far as the details of this situation. And the names, the names have meanings and all that. But here, here's, the, here's the big, big point. God's people, this guy who is in the lineage of Bethlehem, of David, of Judah, there's a famine, and he decides he's going to pick up his family, he's going to take them to the Moabites, where the Moabites live. Now, many of us are like, okay, what's the big deal? Is that like going from Citrus Heights to Rancho Cordova, right? Not a big deal. Well, it has a little more significance than that. They entered the land of Moab, and they settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. Remember, his plan was to go there for a while, and deal with the famine by getting food for his family and she Naomi was left with her two sons she was a widow with two boys her sons took Moabite women as their wives one was named Orpah later would have her own TV show talk show just seeing if you're paying attention not true one was named Orpah and the second was named Ruth after they lived in Moab for about 10 years, both Malon and Chilion, the two sons of Naomi and Elimelech, they also died. We're not told why. We don't know details. And Naomi was left now without her two children and without her husband. Yeah, a lot of tragedy, right? Now, there's the, the, the physical, the relational tragedy that we right away connect with and you know, her husband dies and her two boys get married, they die, and we can connect with that, right? We can feel that pain and that grief. But it's, there's more tragedy that I already kind of hinted at. They moved to a place called Moab, and although the plan was to go and to try to get food for the family and deal with the famine, it ends up they settle down, and then these events unfold. And now Naomi is left in Moab. Remember, she left her home with her husband. She left her, her, her land. She left her people. She left her city of Bethlehem and came there with her husband. And here's where I, at this point, I stopped and I thought, you know, this, this backstory, this origin story of Ruth, because it's not, I hope it's not lost on us that we're, we're teaching 
not a, not a, a, a Marvel story or a Disney story or a Wreck-It Ralph story. This is the word of God. This is God's word to us. And the book is titled Ruth. And if we know about Ruth at all, we know she's an amazing young lady and God worked in her and through her in powerful ways. And yet it begins with this tragic backstory, this origin story, and there's not a lot of room for hope. You with me? Good. So if you're with me, then just pause for a second and let's just acknowledge that we're either there or we have been there, whether we are a follower of Christ, we're his disciple, or maybe you're new this morning and you're not sure where you stand with God and, and you're listening online and trying to figure this out or you're here, you've been invited. Wherever we might be, can we just acknowledge that we're either there or we have been there in this kind of moment when we look at our circumstances and we conclude that there is just no hope. Everything is working against me. And it's usually circumstantial, yes? It's usually we find ourselves, we're just like, and, and, and I don't care if you're under 50 or over 50, you just have those moments where every, what do we, how do we say, the, the deck is stacked against me. You know, I know that's a gambling card playing reference, but it's in that situation where you just can't win, right? We have these phrases because all of us experience these moments where it just feels like there is no room for hope in my story. Everything's against me. And I'm thinking specifically of Ruth. These people come to town. They're, from, they're, they're Jewish. They're Jews from, from Bethlehem. And they come and then this unfolds. And then she gets married and then her husband dies. And here she is now with her mother-in-law and her sister-in-law. There's not a lot of room for hope. And I think it's important, I know it's important for me, and maybe you can stand with me, it's important to acknowledge that we are like this moment, that there's times where we just, if we're honest, we just say, it doesn't feel like there's any room for hope. It doesn't feel like God can restore what has been lost. It feels hopeless. It feels like there's no future sometimes. Right? Come on, let's, if, if we're, because, if we can be honest, it doesn't feel like there's any room for hope in my story. And as a child of God, I have to include him and say, it doesn't feel like God, if I'm honest, it doesn't feel like God can restore what's been broken. How can God bring back to life what is dead? How can he restore what has been gone, been taken, what has been lost? Ruth's story leaves no room for hope. So let me touch on this idea of Moabites. They entered into the land of the Moabites. Who were the Moabites? Well, we're introduced to the Moabites in Genesis chapter 19 when Lot is fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah and he, he loses his wife. She turns back and they make it to another place and they realize they're not going to be welcome there so they go and they stay in a cave and the two daughters of Lot say, hey, there's nobody here for us to get married to, to have a family with. Let's get our dad drunk and... Yeah. So it tells us in chapter 19, verse 36 that both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The firstborn gave birth to a son, and she named him Moab. And he is the father of the Moabites. 
So that's their origin story, this group of people that Elimelech had taken his family to. In Numbers chapter 22, we get another glimpse. Since Balak, the son of Zippor, who was Moab's king at that time, couldn't, he couldn't figure out a way to defeat the Israelites who had now come from Egypt and they were moving into their land and he didn't know what to do. So he sends messengers to this prophet named Balaam. Remember him? The guy that liked to ride around on a donkey and talk with the donkey. He says, please come, come put a curse on these people for me because they're more powerful than I am and I may not be able to defeat them. I need you to help me drive them out of the land. Some of you remember, some of you don't how that played out, but this is the attitude of the Moabites towards the people of God, towards the Israelites. I want you to curse them. God says this in Deuteronomy chapter 23, no Ammonite, which by the way was the offspring of Lot's other daughter, the Ammonites, both of these groups of people were at constant warfare and enmity with God's people. God says no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. God doesn't say stuff like this too often, does he? Where he singles out and says, these people are not welcome. This group of people, they may not enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, may enter the Lord's assembly to worship with them. This is because, A, they did not meet you with food and water on the journey when you came out of Egypt, and also because of what Balaam did. And the king of the Moabites asked Balaam to do and to curse you. So this is the culture, this is the the setting that Elimelech took his family into. This is Ruth's culture. This is what she knew. This is how she had been raised. This is all she knew. And that adds to this idea that sometimes our story feels like there's no room for hope because we we don't have the things that we think we need, the things that we do need, right? No one's told us. The truth. You ever feel like you live in a culture where all it does is that it lies to you? It, 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 it's either lying to you just to, to deceive you or it's trying to manipulate. Everybody has an agenda. Everybody has their hand out. Everybody wants something from you. Everybody wants you to join their side. Or agree. Am I up here all by myself? It's times we feel like everybody's against us. And I I wonder if sometimes Ruth felt like there's just no hope because look. Look at my ancestors. Look at our story. Look how we came about. Look at how we've responded to God and God's people. And my imagination or my opinion is that before Elimelech and Naomi and boys showed up, that maybe she had never even heard of Yahweh and other than the stories that we just referenced. Sometimes in our day, it feels like there's just no room for hope. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Right? So Naomi says to, to Ruth and, and Orpah, look, or to Ruth, because she's already talked to the two of them. I've skipped over some. And she said, I'm going to go back home. I got nothing here. I'm going to go back home. You guys go and find new husbands and go back to your culture, go back to the way of life and start a new life. And so they weep and they cry and Orpah says, okay, and she goes back. Then she says to Ruth, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God. Follow your sister-in-law. Do what she's doing. But Ruth replied, and this is, this is the, 
Um, there's a name for it, and I couldn't find it. And it, ironically, I was at a, a, a dinner last night talking to a guy who's in filmmaking, and, and I totally forgot to ask him. There's a, a term for when, when the, the plot turns, that you, know, the, 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 you get to the darkest point in the story. Um, Avengers, Marvel people love to do this, right? There's six different threads, and all the threads come to a point where all the heroes are fighting some enemy, and they're all losing, you know what I'm talking about? If you watch, you know, it's in other movies too, but it's just the, the darkest moment. And then there is a, a turn. Now for me, it's what? The pivot, yeah, the pivot. It's a plot move. Let me give it the word that I'm going to give it. It may not be the right one. This is where hope is born. This is the turn, and if you're watching the film and your heroes are losing, and you're just like, how's it going to, how, oh, everything's lost, and then something happens that causes you to keep watching because hope is born. And this is where it happens in Ruth's story. She replies to Naomi, do not persuade me. Stop, argue, stop trying to get me to leave you and go back and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May Yahweh, I love this, she says his name. She has at least an, enough understanding of him to know who she believes he is and maybe what she's seen in Naomi. May Yahweh punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. So the turning point in, in, in our backs, in all of us, the, the origin story, the backstory, is when we see the faithfulness of God in the midst of our hopelessness. When we see that glimpse of hope, whatever, and it can take many forms, right? And, and here's, here's a side thing. Let's stop making excuses. Let's show grace to one another, but let's stop making excuses when we go, you don't understand my life. You don't understand my backstory. You don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand, let me, let me talk about marriage. You don't understand my spouse. You don't understand what's happened to me. You don't understand what's been missing from my life. Let's stop, pause, and acknowledge something. God is always at work. He's always revealing himself, even in the midst of hopelessness. And we don't know exactly how he did it. My mind goes to that somehow her interaction with Elimelech and Naomi may be sitting around telling stories. Why'd you guys move here? What happened? That maybe even through Naomi, God began to reveal himself to Ruth. Even in the midst of our hopelessness, God is working. And what he's always been about, as far as I can, from page one, Genesis to the end of Revelation, God has always been about, he has this heart that his creation would know who he really is. He's always wanted us to know him. The garden is set up for us to know him. Salvation, the redeem, everything is set up. The, 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 the trajectory of Israel from calling Moses the, the ark. And no, I mean, just you, you read any page on Scripture, and, and I, I challenge you to see if you can find any evidence that God's heart has not always been that we would know him. And not just we who have put our faith in him, but this world, his creation, the broken, lost people all around us, his heart is that they would know who he is. And he uses, I'm going to say that Elimelech's decision was a fail, 
You don't run, we've, we've seen in other examples, you don't run and leave God's place of blessing when there's trouble. And in spite of that failure, and in spite of what happened in Moab, God is making himself known to this young lady. That is significant. That, is, that should be significant to all of us. That in the moments of our, our, our most hopeless moments, there, if we look, if we look, there's glimpses of God's faithfulness in the midst of our hopelessness. And she sees it, Ruth sees it, and she chooses Yahweh. She chooses Yahweh. Can I take another little rabbit trail? It's really not a rabbit trail, but it's not necessarily in the notes. Ruth, in this point in her life, she chooses Yahweh over all the other gods. And my question that I ask myself and I throw out to all of us, I don't know all of you, so I'm just throw it to all of us. Have you? Have I? And I was able to answer yes. I have. Now that's not a, that's not a, that is a, to him. That in my story, my journey, he revealed himself to me and made it possible for me to say, I choose you. Ruth leaves everything behind, everything that she's known, everything that she grew up being taught was right and good and, and how she should live her life. She leaves it all behind and in a moment she says, I choose Yahweh. I choose your God, Naomi. I'm gonna go with you, I'm gonna be buried there, wherever you go. Ultimately, what she's really deciding is I choose God, Yahweh. Have you? And if, and if you have in your, in, your, in your chair in this moment between you and God, just give him, give him a word of thank you for revealing yourself to me and, and enabling me to choose you, to say no to everything else and yes to you. But ask yourself, have you made the choice that, that Ruth made? And if you're here and you say, I don't think I have, God's, here's God's heart towards you. Choose me now. Choose me now. You walked in here this morning carrying whatever gods. You say, well, I don't have gods. You have idols. We all do. You have things that you're worshiping, things that you're depending on, things that you're looking to for meaning, for happiness, for joy, for fulfillment, for grat uh, just being fulfilled, whatever. We all do. That's who we are as people. So you walked in. All of us walked in. You walked in this morning with these gods. And if you say, no, I haven't chosen him, God is saying, well, choose me now. Just lay those down. You can, you can follow me. Ruth sees the faithfulness of God in her hopelessness. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. We're jumping ahead. A lot has happened. She, let me give you a little bit, I guess, for sake of time. She, they go back to Bethlehem. They get there, and uh, things, are, things are tough. Naomi has no income. You know, they sold their land, they sold their farm, and so she's got nothing to, to sustain herself. And one day Ruth says, well, can I go? Um, I, I've learned that there's this thing where you can go and you, when they're harvesting, whatever they're harvesting, they allow people to come behind the harvesters and whatever got missed or dropped, then you can pick it up and you can take it home and you can make food out of it. And Naomi says, that's great, yeah, go do that. And so she does and she ends up at this field and this is where we kind of get into the romance of Ruth. And some of you know that Ruth is really a, a romance, don't you? It's a, it's a love story. It's a pretty cool love story. 
There's some really cool moments in here. We're not going to unpack that, sorry. Um, but that part of the story begins. She goes to a, a field and she begins to glean. And the owner of the field, who's named Boaz, shows up and he says, Hey guys, how's it going? And whoa, hold on. Hey, 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 who is that? And they go, Oh, she's been here since this morning. She's worked really hard. That's the, that's the Moabite woman. That's the, 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 the widow of Elimelech's son. And, and she came back with, with Naomi. She came back. Yeah. And man, she's been working all day. And, and so he goes over to her and he begins to interact with Ruth. And um, it's really romantic, isn't it? It really is. He's just like, hey, don't go. Don't glean any other field. Just stay here. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell the young men to leave you alone. Don't mess with you. And, and you'll be safe here. And, and at lunchtime, you can come sit with me and we can have lunch together. And, and you can drink from the, the water that the young men are bringing for the workers. And you can help yourself to that. And, and then he goes to the workers and he says, hey, you know, if she kind of doesn't know the rules and she kind of gets too close to the harvesting where they make, you know how they harvest, right? They cut it and then they tie them up in those, in those sheaves. They would stand up. You, we don't do it that way anymore, but you get the picture? Okay. So they're doing that and she, if she gets too close, don't give her a hard time. Don't chew her out. In fact, just kind of drop some stuff. Isn't that cool? Come on, guys. We should be learning from this, right, from Boaz. You know, just drop some, some sheaves every once in a while and just when she's right there and that kind of thing. And so his story begins to unfold and Ruth comes to him and she bows down with her face to the ground and she says to him, why are you so kind to notice me although I'm a foreigner? I'm a Moabite. We know the story. We know the history. And Boaz answers her, everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother in the land of your birth and how it came, you came to a people you didn't previously know. You didn't understand anything about us and our culture and language and all that stuff. May the Lord reward you for what you've done. And may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. I told you we would be talking about redemption. Let me add a word to our thinking about redemption. Redemption is really about identity, about a new identity. And, and Boaz sees the true identity of Ruth. Isn't that good? How, how prone are we to get stuck on the Moabite thing? How prone are we to get stuck on you're a stranger, you're a foreigner, you don't belong here? How, how prone are we to get stuck on the, the culture differences? You know, I don't like your culture. I don't like what your values are and what you, I don't like the gods that you worship. Good, that's all good. But we get stuck there and what we do is we see people, we, we give them an identity based upon all those things. What Boaz does is he gives, he speaks to Ruth's identity in these terms. I know the choices that you've made. I know that you chose to walk away from your gods, your culture, your family, all of that, and that you chose to serve Naomi, and you chose to come with her. And how did he say it? I love his phrase. Under whose wings you have come for refuge. I think this is significant. I know it is for me in relationships with people, and let's make it about marriage. My relationship with my wife, if you're married, you're in a marriage relationship, how prone are we to give the person we're married to an identity based upon our experiences with them? Usually the most current experiences. 
what you did last night, what you said last night, what you didn't do, what you're not doing, how you're behaving, how you, you fill in the blank, however you want to. You with me? And we give them identity. And I know this because when someone says, well, you know, tell us about Becky. And you, some of you know me pretty well. What's one of the first things that comes out of my mouth? I talk about Becky being a... Whoa, man, I wish. <laughs> I talk a lot about our differences of, of, of style and how we want the house, and, and I use the word hoarder. You've heard me use that, haven't you? If I'm not careful, that becomes her identity to me. And if we're honest, sometimes in marriage, if this goes on long enough, the one that we're married to, their identity that we give them is that they're the enemy. They're the problem. Come on now. We do this. And it would have been so easy for, for Boaz to go, she's a Moabite, she's been married, she's a, she's a widow, she's, oh, those people, the Moabites. Her great, 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 grandfather, Lot. Oh, what a mess. Once a mess, always a mess. Those people, we do it all the time. And praise God that Boaz looks at her and instead of saying that's her identity, he gives her, he deals with her, he responds to her with this identity. You've chosen to place yourself under the wings of Yahweh. And that's who she is to him. Can I, so that I am faithful to talk about marriage in this series, can I suggest that if, we're, if you're married, this is what, how we need to treat the person that we're married to. Speak to them, love them, relate to them, interact with them according to the identity that God has given them. Amen. Enough said? Okay. If you're not married yet, you're thinking about getting married one day, when girls no longer have cooties and you'll consider it. You're not ready to get married until you understand what your identity is in Christ and you're willing to commit to live life with another person forever according to the identity God has given them. Do I need to say that again? You're not ready to get married until you understand clearly your identity in God, the identity that he has given you through Jesus Christ. And commit to a person to do life to, for the rest of your life according, you know, till death do us part for rich or poor, sickness and health, poor, we, right? We, say, we make, I vow, I vow, I vow. Here's what our vow should be. Here's what your vow should be when you get married. I vow to live with you as husband or wife according to the identity God has given you. And that's how I, I commit to see you, to relate to you, to love you, to interact with you, forgive you, walk through tough times with you according to the identity God has given you, not the identity that I am prone to give you. Does that make sense? That's the lesson for me from, from Boaz, that he looks at her and he sees her in the identity that God has given her. She has chosen Yahweh over her gods. And that is how Boaz is going to move forward with her. Not that she's a Moabite, not, that, not her backstory, any of that. Okay, we've got to keep moving. Chapter 2 continues. She comes home, Ruth comes home, says, wow, you got a lot of stuff. You got a lot of grain. What happened? Where'd you? And so she tells him, "Where you gathered to? I, where did? Where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you, because man, you got a, a great stash of, of of grain." 
Ruth tells her mother-in-law about the man she had worked with and said, the name of the man I worked with today was Boaz. And Naomi says to the daughter-in-law, to Ruth, may he be blessed by the Lord who has not forsaken the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness in the living or in the dead. Naomi continues, the man is a close relative. In fact, he is one of our family redeemers. There's that word. Jump to chapter 3. And we'll join, I'll join you there in just a second. So Naomi begins to think, okay, she, and, and in, that fra- in that section there, she realizes some things. Most importantly, that God has not given up on her. That God still has a good plan for her. And so she begins to think, Boaz, family redeemer. Okay, Ruth, here's what I want you to do. And she tells her to do this really strange thing. They're going to be harvesting, finishing the harvesting tonight, and they're going to have a party afterwards because all this food God's provided. And so I want you to go to that, that party, that celebration, and once, don't let people know you're there. Kind of be sneaky, ladies. No. Um, go there, and once he lays down, I want you to go lay down at the foot of his sleeping bag, and I want you to uncover his feet. Are you kidding me? I mean, I'm think, what is Ruth thinking? I don't know. But that's what she's told to do. And Ruth says, okay, I'll do it. And so Boaz eats and he drinks, chapter 3, verse 7, and he's in good spirits, a good harvest. He went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley. He's done thanking everybody. Good job, guys. Great job. Everybody worked hard. It was a great harvest. And so then Ruth goes in secretly. She uncovers his feet, and she lays down at his feet. At midnight, he's startled. Something wakes him up. He turns over, and there lying at his feet is a woman. This is so strange for us today. This is not prescriptive this is descriptive okay you know what i mean by that it's not prescriptive i'm parents i'm not telling any of your teenagers that this is how you court someone so don't send me an email saying kurt said no i'm not saying that it's descriptive of what happened and it has meaning for them i'm not sure it would work today okay hey can i come into your son's room and just lie on the floor there and uncover his feet and then when he wakes up i'll no don't don't do that He's startled, he turns over, and there lying his feet was a woman. So he says, who are you? And she says, I'm Ruth, your slave. She replied, spread your cloak over me, for you are a family redeemer. Then he said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before, because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Do you see the identity that he's, that he's speaking to in her and he continues to speak into her? What she's asking, what she's doing is not strange to him. In fact, he's a little overwhelmed that this, this young lady, could, she could have turned to a lot of different ways to try to meet their situation or fix their problem or meet their needs. But instead, she comes and she, basically what she's asking him is, will you marry me? Will you redeem my mother-in-law's family? The land that they, and we don't have time to get into it, but the land that they, that they sold when they left, there's a plan in place that God put in place to redeem that land, and she's asking Boaz to do that. Can I say this again? I think I said it before, but God is always at work redeeming what has been lost. Amen. He's always at work redeeming what has been lost. If you're married and you've lost hope, God is always at work redeeming what has been lost. I don't know what that looks like. It, this is bizarre, is it not? And yet, in the midst of what seems very strange to us, the, the principle at work here is that God is always redeeming what has been lost. 
And I'm convinced, I, and, I, and this, this conviction comes from my own journey, particularly this week, I'm convinced that we all need, if you know Jesus as Savior, you put your faith in him, you're his disciple, you need to hear this morning this truth because it hasn't changed. God is always at work redeeming what has been lost. Some in this room have lost a lot. And if you go back to where we started, we're prone to get lost in that hopelessness and not see hope. Well, here's why we have hope. Because God is always at work redeeming what has been lost. Oh, I need to wrap this up. Let me, if, does anybody take a note? So let me give you this. You want to know what a family redeemer is? It's Leviticus chapter 25. Read that, 23 to 28. And I'm also, also going to give you Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, because in that verse, God is the kinsman or the family redeemer, saying that he will, because what Boaz does, when she uncovered his feet, maybe I didn't touch on it, he then takes his sleeping bag and he puts it over her. He says, yes, I will, I will put this covering, I will protect you, I will do what you've asked. And God in Ezekiel says Israel to his people, the Jewish people, that's what I do for you. That's what I want to do for you. And he, he said that to them after they had been very, very, they had a very tragic backstory. I knew I was in trouble. So the, the, the guys that, that speak up here, We'll probably all tell you the same thing. You know you're in trouble when you got too many pages, right? <laughs> you judge your, by, and you know yourself. You know how many pages you can get through, and I've got too many. Can I, let me, let me read this. Exodus chapter six. This is God speaking to Moses. I want you to hear the heart of God. Therefore, Moses, I want you to go back and you're going you're to rescue the slaves. And I want you to tell my people that I am Yahweh. And I want you to tell my people that I will deliver you from the forced labor of the Egyptians and that I will free you from slavery to them. God says, Moses, tell my people this. I will redeem you. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and a great acts of judgment. Remember the ten plagues? Remember Passover? I will take you as my people. I will be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh your God who delivered you from the forced labor of the Egyptians. You see, redemption is all about identity. Now, if you, if you look at redemption in Latin, it means to buy back or buy again. When, when we look at it in the Hebrew, it has to do with God reclaiming what is rightfully his. And it always speaks to our identity, whether it's Ruth leaving behind her gods and choosing Yahweh, or Yahweh reaching into Egypt with those plagues and saying, these people are not your slaves, they are my people. And I'm going to set them free from slavery, and they're going to be mine, and they're going to know that. Redemption is about identity. I think... I think strongly, with conviction, that many of our problems in marriage right currently and problems that we're going to have in marriage, those that are going to get married, has to do with not understanding our identity in Christ. The person that you're married to, the person that you've committed to, 
How do you see them? How do you wake up in the morning and look at them and talk to them? How do you navigate through the day? How do you make decisions together? How do you face challenging moments together? Will reveal the identity that you see them to have. God wants to redeem our marriages. Can you say amen to that? I can. I want him to redeem my marriage. And if you're not yet married, you want God to redeem. So I'm not even married yet, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be perfect. No, it's not. You're going to need God to redeem your marriage daily. Daily. Listen to Psalm 103. My soul, praise Yahweh and all that is within me. Praise his holy name. My soul, praise the Lord and do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all of your sin. He heals all of your diseases. Do you see the identity change there? All of our phrasing speaks of our identity before Christ and after. Born again, new life, new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. My identity was that I was lost in sin and I was covered with disease. Now he redeems my life from the pit. My identity before Jesus was condemned to hell. But he changes my identity. He redeems my life from pit. He crowns me with faithful love and compassion. How about Job? You think Job understood what loss was? I know that my Redeemer lives. Spoken from the darkness of the pain that he and the loss that he went through. In the midst of his darkest moment, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, I know that my Redeemer lives. In the end, he will stand on the earth. And a few moments later, we're going to come to the table and we're going to proclaim his death until he... Do we believe that? If we believe God redeems, then we have to believe that this is going to happen. Job believed it. I know that my Redeemer lives. Well, you can't see him. He's not here. No, but in the end, he will stand on the earth. And though my skin will be destroyed, this flesh will be gone in my body. In a body that God gives him, I will see God. And I myself will see him with my own eyes. I'll see him, and he won't be a stranger to me. How my heart longs for that day. i got to stop. Can I give you a verse? Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. Speaks of the Redeemer. How did God redeem us? By his blood. By his death. Husbands, how do you redeem, work with God to redeem your marriage, redeem your relationship with your wife? By your blood. Didn't Paul tell us that in Ephesians? Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loves the church. Lay down your life. Stop holding on to the identity that you've put on your wife. Wives, same thing. It's sacrifice, is it not? Now, it's a sweet, beautiful romance in Ruth, but it's sacrifice on both of their parts to lay down whatever they had to lay down for that to happen. Husbands and wives, we redeem our marriage by sacrifice, by laying down our own life. If you're to get married yet and you're looking forward to it, this is the picture, this is the model of what it means to have a redeemed marriage, one that honors God and reflects him. Let me close with this thought and I'll invite our worship team to come. 
I'm going to give you guys back control of the screen. There's a, a retired pastor named John Piper, and this is what he says of the book of Ruth. The life of the godly is not a straight line to glory. I put my faith in Jesus, and then I'm, man, everything's good, and I'm with him. No, that's not the case. But they do get there. Let me read that again. The life of the godly is not a straight line to glory, but they do get there. The life of the godly is not an interstate through Nebraska. I know we're Californians for the most part, but everybody knows Nebraska, right? It's just like, why is it a state? I don't know. The life of, no, I'm sorry. The life of the godly is not an interstate straight through Nebraska, but it's a state road through the Blue Ridge Mountains of Tennessee. There are rock slides and precipices and dark mists and bears and slippery curves and hairpin turns that make you go backwards in order to go forwards. But all along this hazardous, twisted road that doesn't let you see very far ahead, there are frequent signs that say this. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And at the bottom right-hand corner of those signs written with an unmistakable hand are the words, As I live, says the Lord. Our brother Michael said a few weeks ago, but God, as I live, says the Lord, I will get you there. I will get you there. Because he is the God of redemption. He is constantly at work. And he wants to work in your marriage and my marriage if we're married. If you're not married, he wants to work in you, prepare you for a redeemed marriage where two people come together and commit to spend the rest of their lives together seeing each other in the eyes of God, through the eyes of God, the identity that God gives to each other. Not the identity that we're prone to give. Are you with me still? All right, thank you for your patience. I went over this morning. We need to, we need to respond. We need to worship. And so I invite you, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to hand it over to Nate and Stacy. Just inviting God to do what only he can do in us. Do not miss this moment. Wherever you are, married, unmarried, old, young, follower of Jesus, not a follower of Jesus, wherever you are, this is our moment. Father, meet us where we are. Meet us with a redeemer's heart. We need you to buy back what we have stolen, what we have sold off. It might be our very life and soul, or it might be our marriage, or it might be relationships. It might be our, our inner life, our devotion, our worship. God, meet us where we are right now and buy back what is yours. Help us to op have open hands, open hearts, open ears to worship you in this moment. Amen.